everybody. Welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. And today I'm very happy to have on the podcast a leader that I have had the honor to follow for years and who today is the commander of the Canadian Army. Um, I originally met Major General St. Louis in Portugal, of all places. So two Canadians joining each other in Europe was was kind of funny to me, but uh, that's where we met. And Major General St. Louis was a colonel at the time, and it was one of the first times I spent time with the Canadian Army. I didn't know much about the structure then, but the general was so kind to take time out of his very, very busy schedule because I shadowed him for a while. Um, He took the time to explain the structure of the Canadian Army and what I was witnessing at the time during this NATO exercise, which was Trident Juncture. And I was ever so grateful for that. He was kind, gracious. Um, he, he, was, he was just one of those people that, you know, when you meet, you kind of think, I want to get to know this man more. And I've had the privilege to know him uh, since then. And it's been many years. Um, and I told him at the time, I think you're going to be commander of the Canadian Army. <laughs> And, and lo and behold, here we are today. So with that said, uh, Major General St. Louis, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a privilege to have you on the show. I, the privilege is mine. Uh, merci, uh, Jyoti. Um, th- thanks for thinking that uh, I have something to contribute in the conversation we might have today. Uh, the, the pleasure is, is, is all mine. Uh, General, uh, you absolutely have something to contribute. You always have. And, uh, you know, you've been a wonderful advocate for the Canadian Army and the Canadian Armed Forces writ large. Uh, But as I said, you know, I I judge a man by his character. And you have always taken your time to educate me and uh, which allows me to do my job better. But in doing so, you know, you didn't just brush people off. Um, I, I found you to be so gracious with your time. So, um, yeah, I can't thank you enough for that because it means a lot. Yeah, a lot of folks, I think even myself for a while, um, when, when you live in the Army, when you grow up in the Army, when you serve in the forces for years and, and you interact with people outside of the forces, um, if we would listen to ourselves, people in uniform, we would realize that we are very insular. We are very insulated um, through our mean, our manners, through our language, through the way we relate to what we think and hold to be true. We don't always realize that uh, we actually speak in a different language. Our reality is a different reality than most Canadians. So every opportunity you have to either talk to Canadians or talk to Canadians through a defense journalist like you are and professionals that do your profession, I think it behooves on us, the military member, to adjust uh, their language, adjust our, um, our narrative, de manière to, to be more accessible, to, to be um, understood, I guess. Sometimes I, I found that uh, even myself, I would kind of come at it through my high horse and come at it through, what, what do you mean you don't understand what a company is? A company is 110 infantiers coming together. Oh, no, a company is a business enterprise that uh, runs a business. And, and we speak differently with similar words. So um, the fact that you were willing to listen to some of that explanation uh, speaks volumes to your approach. But uh, uh, thanks for highlighting it in your introduction. Uh, well, you're most welcome, and and I can also add that uh, that the military has a lot of acronyms. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it just hearing all the acronyms, it's like holy smoke! Look at what oh, what does that mean? <laughs> but <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> but you know what? I, I, I love it. I, I I take it as a challenge to try and learn and educate mm-hmm. myself. So, yeah. So tell me about Michael Saint Louis. Uh, what prompted you to join the military, and what made you pick the specific branch that you did? general so if you bear with me uh, i might take you down a uh, back in back in time through a little bit of story of uh, my family and 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 where i'm from so please i'm, I'm born um i was born in in nicaragua in central america 
I'm born from a Canadian father from Montreal, South Shore of Montreal, and a Nicaraguan mother. They met uh, when she was studying in Quebec. They dated at the time. Eventually, they separated or they went back their own way to their... Uh, she went back to Nicaragua for three, four years later. Um, he realized that she was the one. So he came down to Nicaragua. They got married. And eventually, I uh, came um, as the oldest of a family of two boys. And we were living in Managua, the capital, having what, from my father's perspective, would have been an amazing life. He's from suburban uh, Canada, middle-class Canadian, son of a war veteran from Second World War. So uh, was born after the war when his father uh, finished his service. And uh, he could never have envisioned living in a Central American country uh, with some of the the customs and culture that he was exposed to. He learned Spanish and we would never have left. I think we would have come to visit Canada and maybe come to school in Canada, but then gone back and lived the life uh, in Central America. Sandinista revolution broke out in uh, 78, 79. Mm -hmm. And by that time, a lot of uh, our family, my mother's family uh, lost uh, their farms and their businesses and uh, were, were taken out of their homes as the revolution on, on behalf of the people were retaking uh, some of these uh, businesses and, and uh, homes. Mm -hmm. So through a time of violence and upheaval, my father um, said to his wife, my mother, that uh, maybe it'd be time to go back to Canada. And they've been living in Nicaragua for eight years, seven years. Maybe uh, Longueuil, South Shore, Montreal would be a good place to relocate while this... Uh, revolution carries on a lot of my other relatives they resettled in uh, miami like a lot of central american and latin american expats mm -hmm. wind up doing and to this day a lot of my nicaraguan family are actually americans who live in miami or in that region but but then so we came back to canada and uh, we come back to canada i go to start going to l'école en français i i was already speaking french because at home in nicaragua we spoke French and Spanish. I went to French school in Nicaragua okay. and uh, then went to French school in, in Longueuil and through school and then high school, I, I got relatively pretty good marks. I started doing cadets in high school. So I was in boarding school in Montreal, would go to boarding school on Sunday, would come back on Friday and then Friday night would get ready with my uniform and my boots and spit shining and shining my brass and then on Saturday, I would spend the whole day at cadets. Sunday, skiing if it was winter or hanging out with friends, playing touch football if it was summer with the cadets. And then um, go back to high school. By the end of high school, time to choose what to do with your life, right? In Quebec, uh, on finit secondaire 5. And uh, you have to pick what CJEP or what, what do you want to do with your life? And um, I was doing pretty good in the cadets. Uh, I had uh, gone through the corporal and sergeant, and I was a warrant in the cadets, a huge cadet corps, 300 of us, um, armored corps, affiliated cadet corps. I had done a couple of summer camps, and uh, I kind of enjoyed that, that life, that discipline. I also had a, a connection with my grandfather, who I mentioned was a war veteran, and he served dans le régiment de Châteauguay which eventually uh, was one of the regiments that got affiliated or, or founders of the Royal 22e Regiment. But at the oh. time, it was Le Regiment Châteauguay. Okay. And uh, he um, was a sergeant major, so adjudant maître, company sergeant major, and in charge of a coastal defense battery in Nova Scotia. He had a herniated disc that didn't preclude him from service, but precluded him from um, going to England and then eventually to Normandy or other theaters of war for Canadians. His brothers went on to serve in Normandy. He lost a brother on those beaches who we remember a couple of days ago on the anniversary of Normandy. But for my grandfather, he, he served uh, as a battery sergeant major, if you want, of a coastal defense battery. If you remember at the time, we were concerned that on the West Coast and on the East Coast, German submarines would come to our shores and get up to nefarious activity or 
attack our convoys in the War of the Atlantic. Submarines were sighted off the coast of Victoria and off the coast of Halifax, even all the way into the St. Lawrence. So Mm -hmm. he was assigned in the south of Halifax area on the coast with a battery defense uh, responsibility as a sergeant major. To this day in my offices, um, I've carried pictures of him, black and white pictures of him in service. Um, I have a picture of the unit um, NCOs of 1943, and, and there's a sergeant major, Laurent Saint-Louis, and, and that goes in my office, uh, every office that I occupy. So through his connection and affinity um, with service, which he never really boasted about or talked about, I think there was some, I think there was some shame that he didn't go over mm. and he had to stay behind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, he never told me that. That is me, who is now a soldier, that I kind of can, can think that I would have felt that way. And uh, that's why he didn't talk about it too much. Um, but through his uh, encouragement, through the fact that I was kind of okay with cadets and doing well, the choice became, where do I go for, high, for CJEP? And I applied au CJEP de Brébeuf which is a well-reputed uh, CJEP in Quebec, place where prime ministers and titan of industries come from. And I'm accepted at this CJEP. Um, and I'm accepted at CMR. I'm accepted at military college. And um, I start to kind of, didn't, I didn't know what to do. I, I'm like, I, do I really want to be in the army? I, I, like, I remember arguing with my parents. Like, is it really for me? And and they didn't say it out loud. They told me years later, but they were kind of giving me the, their, their opinion, but not, without pushing me. Um, right. At the end of the day, I, I think some of it came down to um, we weren't rich. We were, we were middle class, but we, we were never. Uh, um, we had to make sacrifices uh, growing up and they made sacrifices for me to go to private school because they paid for private school in Quebec through my high school. And I realized that that cost a lot of money. Right. Um, and I realized that Brebeuf for the CJEP that I got accepted in would be also a private CJEP that would continue to cost a lot of money. And on the other hand, I had this amazing scholarship, which is like a million dollar scholarship, right? You get right. five yeah. years of schooling, you get a salary, then you get a job. Then if you're good at this job, you'll eventually get a pension. Like it's, it's like winning the lottery. Yeah. So it kind of became obvious uh, that what, what are you even thinking about? Like you're kind of good at this. You kind of know what this is about. Mm-hmm. You've been good at cadets. You're good at discipline. You're going to a um, private school run by uh, Catholic uh, uh, brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, so no stranger to discipline. And on top of that, it's a scholarship. So I, I said, yes, I, I, I arrived at military college. I was 16 years old uh, because I finished uh, high school at that age. I was one of the youngest in my, my year. Um, and wow. you know what? I never looked back. I never looked back. I, I, there's nothing at military college that uh, um, I didn't enjoy. Even if I found it hard, it was hard physically, hard mentally, hard academically. I, I started my military college by failing. Oh, no um, kidding. I was going to be a physicist. I was okay. like, I thought I was a big deal, good in math and physics and chemistry. And I failed statistics and math and algebra. And <laughs> their college authorities were like, you're not that good in math, are you? Do you want to be a historian? And I'm like, what does that mean? And like, why don't you become a military strategic studies uh, bachelor degree? And what does that do? Well, you will learn all about international relation and political science and military history and tactics. And by that time, I wanted to be in the army, right? It was clear. I wanted to be like I was in the cadets. I wanted to be part of the land force. And I'm like, that kind of makes sense. Like, why did I even want to be a physicist? Right. And uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, that was a great, great uh, intersection of life where I look back and I, I I actually think that I made the right choice as that degree was exactly what I wind up being good at and loved uh, learning and, and being taught on. And then I've leveraged that for the rest of my service. Um, I, I, like I said, CMR was very formative for me while at the same time, not foreign 
given what I had done before. So that's kind of the long story uh, of why I joined, why I served. And in, in your question, you asked me why the army, well, largely because that's what my grandfather had been in. He was in the Richemont Chateau Gay. And that's what the cadets that I did, right? So in cadets, right. everyone talked about going to Germany on a cadet camp or doing their or airborne course or being good at shooting. Or um, I realized that I liked being in teams of teams. I liked being in groups of people. So when it was time to choose a career in the army, it, it became obvious that I didn't want to be alone in a cockpit. Um, I, I didn't want to be on a ship um, uh, in the captain's chair on top of the, the bridge. Like I just wanted to be in a team. I've always felt more at ease in a team, um, often thinking that I should be in charge of the team, but that's a different conversation. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm still able to be in a team, not being in charge. Uh, and, and that's what attracted me to, to the army, Jody. I love it. I love it, General, because, you know, a question that I was going to follow was, you know, did you foresee having, you know, having a full career in the army? But clearly you did. You know, that was that was your focus, which I think is awesome. I, I would say that um, did I foresee myself having a career? What, what I always told myself is as long as you succeed, as long as I was succeeding at what was right in front of me. Mm-hmm. I would always have the choice to continue to serve. So not seeing like the 30 year path, but the immediate path Uh or the immediate success. So the immediate success was, well, I had to pass basic officer course. Right. Okay. So I did pretty well. I was like one of the top students on basic officer course. Okay. This is going well. Then section command course in the infantry. And then, platoon command course in the infantry and then mechanized platoon command. So every one of these steps, just thinking, if I pass this step, I can continue to serve. If I am good platoon commander, then I might be a good captain. If I'm a good captain, maybe I can be a company commander. If I'm a pretty good company commander, oh, wow, like now it's serious. I might be a battalion commander. (laughs) And then So every course, every responsibility, I've never really thought about the responsibilities after the next responsibility. I've always thought, how can I be the best or succeed at a minimum at what I'm doing? Um, And like I alluded to before, I just love being in charge of teams or with a team, and I love winning. So in military college, I, my squadron wind up winning a bunch of things when I was part of it or being in charge of it. I remember thinking of myself, I'm the best platoon commander in my battalion. I don't know if it was true, but that's what I thought. Sure. And I certainly believe that I was the best company commander and winning was became part of the, just be good when you're doing what you're doing now or succeed at a course. Um, people joke around around me sometimes in the last couple of years as you become a senior officer, I never know if people are like kind of just being nice to me because of my rank, but they're like, yes, yeah, or like you're always striving to be top student. Well, no, or yes, like I've never always been a top student or it has happened, but rarely, but it is about how do you focus on what is happening now, give it your all and try to succeed at the task at hand. And in the military, the beauty is that if you do that, the military keeps giving you new jobs. The military <laughs> right. keeps giving you more responsibility. Like it just so happens that the path continuously gets built for you in front of you right. to continue on this journey. So I never saw the path completely built. I never saw it as a point A to what I'm doing today. I just saw it as I need to pass my airborne course. I need to pass my advanced mountain course, which I barely did not because I have a big mouth, but I didn't, I did pass it and, and be the best infantry instructor at the infantry school, or be good when you're in charge of officer cadets in prep year in Saint-Jean, or be good as a brigade commander in Portugal, where we first met. And you're trying to show the Russians at the time that the resolve of the alliance, the NATO alliance is serious. And that's in 2015. God knows that it is serious today. So 
I don't see it as seeing myself from point A from to point B being the 30-year journey. I just see it as hundreds of steps, hundreds of challenges, hundreds of opportunity that in the military, if you succeed, they will keep giving you more. I love that, General. You know, one of the one of the questions that I have for you is about leadership and how your leadership style has evolved. But I'd actually like to save that to closer to the end of this conversation, because I think um, some of the things that you'll share will will shed light on your leadership style. Um, but for those people around the world that are not familiar with the Canadian Army, uh, or for those people in Canada, for that matter, that are not familiar with the Canadian Army, how would you describe it, um, you know, in terms of size and capability? Yeah, there's different ways to describe the Canadian Army uh, to folks that might might not be as well-versed as, as you are or some people listening to your po- podcast regularly. The, the, the Canadian Army refers to the, the land component of a joint force. The Canadian Armed Forces have an air force that um, runs airplanes and helicopters and space assets out of air force bases. The Canadian Armed Forces have a Navy. The Navy has service combatant ships. It has submarines. It has smaller ships. It oversees some maritime uh, helicopter capabilities on some of these ships, mostly on each of our left and right coasts, but are responsible for all three coasts and then going into the high seas to be that um, military presence um, on, on, in the sea domain. But it has this land domain, this land component, this army, which is what, what I've served in most of my life that I now have the honor of, of, of commanding as the acting commander of the army. And then it is made up of 40,000, 42,000 men and women from across Canada. The 40 odd plus thousand folks are divided into different components. So if I say a component, I refer to a type of service within the army. You have what we call regular service army members, which is people like me who join and are serving full-time, full-time capacity. You you work in a job, you do your job well, then you get sent to a different job. You you move around army bases across Canada, but you have what we call army reservists. Army reservists um, work part-time or full-time if they choose to, but mostly the model is a a part-time force that is there uh, to be called upon either in times of crisis, in times of mobilization, or for specific tasks that are assigned to them where we get an effect from their part-time service. They are scattered across Canada in close to 200 armories, um, different places where you might not have a regular force presence from the Army, the Air Force, or the Navy. You would find an armory in small-town Canada all over our our country, and they represent all the capabilities within the Army that I'll come back to. Mm -hmm. Another component that helps us deliver our our effects are the civilian public servants. There's uh, a couple of hundred uh, public servants that choose to work in the Army to help us manage our bases, maintain our equipment, plan our activities, uh, take care of our finances. And there are a third component of the army. Then there's a subcomponent of the army, somewhat associated with the reservists, the army reservists, because they're in part-time service. And those are the Canadian Rangers. And the Canadian Rangers serve in, in close to 200 communities across the periphery of our country, the remote areas from coast to the north to our coasts to the middle of our country and in in, in remote areas, in isolated areas, in um, communities where the only federal presence or one of the only federal national presence are these rangers, Canadian rangers who are in part-time service to our country. And they also belong uh, to the army. And if I may uh, remind your audience, we are currently in the year of the ranger. It is right. the Canadian Rangers 75th anniversary. So if you see a, a soldier with a red kangaroo and the Ranger badge and the Ranger ball cap, well, 
those are the folks that I'm referring to. So that's the people that make up the army. And I start with the people because the army is a people business. It is people coming together to defend our national interests. There are people coming together and stand on guard uh, for our nation, either at home or abroad. And to these people, you can give them whatever piece of equipment, uh, depending on where we are in our history. And we started with muskets and horses um, and howitzers and have evolved to what we have today. And uh, those widgets and those pieces of equipment today uh, look like light armored vehicles. Um, They're called, in an acronym we use, our LAVs, so L-A-V. We are on Model 6, so you would hear the word LAV 6. And these are eight-wheeled armored vehicle with a turret that uh, is able to engage with a 25-millimeter machine gun. And it carries a section. A section is nine soldiers um, within that vehicle. And that LAV 6 is kind of the staple of our army. We have about 500 of them. And they carry a lot of the soldiers to their mission, to harm, through an objective. Mm -hmm. They are the staple of our military. In addition to the LAV-6, we have main battle tanks, uh, Leopard 2s, um, that were acquired for the war in Afghanistan. Some of the fighting we were doing against the Taliban, uh, we went after that capability as a game changer in that fight and still holds true today as it marries up with the infantry LAV vehicle and together the tank and the LAV-6 formed a combat team, which is the main maneuver element within the army. And they are supported by long range fires, artillery. When you think of artillery, you think of a cannon, a a long range cannon that engages at 30 kilometers. Mm -hmm. So we have regiments of artillery that support the advancing LAV-6 and main battle tanks that need help from the engineers to advance in the battle space. Combat engineers, ground troops with specialized equipment that helps to build roads, build bridges, blow up obstacles or clear obstacles, clear minefields. So they have engineer specialized equipment. And with these four main elements of combat arms, these are four trades that we call the combat arms, the artillery that shoots at long range, the engineers that support your mobility for the infantry and the tank that are moving about the battle space, you need a myriad of supporting vehicles and supporting pieces of equipment. You need trucks and Jeeps and um, cargo movers and people movers that come at scale in the hundreds to move about the ammunition and the equipment and the people you need to sustain that advice. And in addition to all of that, if God forbid, you incur losses. We have armored ambulances and wheeled ambulance that will evacuate your soldiers. We have some other specialized equipment like vehicles that our aim is to be reconnaissance platforms. So that's the eyes and ears of the advancing military. We have added unmanned air vehicles that we can send and fly and hover in the air that will give us advanced warning of what the enemy is doing. We have radars that detect what is coming towards us, either flying or what is being thrown at us when we are under attack so we can detect incoming artillery or incoming mortar fire. Uh, Those radars help us. And in order to make all of that work, all of that dance and synchronization and movement of hundreds and hundreds of soldiers and vehicles, you need command and control. You need assets that talk to each other and issue orders, receive orders, transmit instructions, keep tabs on what is happening, what is happening to the enemy, what is happening to your friendly forces. And these command and control vehicles and uh, radars and antennas and systems that are connected to each other is kind of the glue of all of these moving parts that I've just described. So if if I may end with, with uh, trying to give an image of what I'm talking about to your listeners. If, if you're in the Air Force, you're in charge of a plane. Mm-hmm. If you're in a fighter plane, you're by yourself in a cockpit. If you're in a transport plane, there's two pilots and they might be a crew of three or four. And you tell the plane to go left, well, you just turn the stick and the whole plane turns. And if you're by yourself, that's pretty easy. If there's 
10 people in the back. They don't even know what's happening. They're turning. Right. If you're in a ship, you're on a combat service ship or a service combatant ship. You're on the, on the deck of the bridge. You're the captain and you order starboard 50. I don't even know if that's an order in the Navy, but let's pretend it is. So, <laughs> right. and, and then, and then the, the ship turns and things are moving and the ship's company doesn't even know people are at their workstations or at their place of uh, uh, duty and taking care of the engines and the radars and so on. But the ship has just turned starboard and you're mm -hmm. continuing on your own way. Right. So if you're a bird looking at these effects, like they, they sound pretty simple. The army, let's say I was commanding a battalion on the move. A battalion on the move would have all the pieces, all the pieces of equipment that I've just described to you. Mm -hmm. Infantry, main battle tanks, artillery, engineers, command and control, sustainment, radars, and so on. And if I was in my vehicle and I give an order and I say, objective on the right, two kilometers, I want everyone to turn right at this grid and go and attack. If you were on top of us and would see these hundreds of vehicles getting the order to turn right, you would every time, what is that? Like someone would be going left. Like, where is he going left? Like, what's happening? Who's that dude? Who's that dudette turning right. left? Right. So there's a complexity to the army. There's a complexity to all these small moving pieces. There's an, an, a challenge of making everyone get on the same page mm. to achieve a common effect um, that is very peculiar to an army. But if you know nothing about the military, you know nothing about the Canadian army. The Canadian army is a, a medium to small military in comparison that is um, well-equipped with some of the pieces of equipment that I've just described that is able to come and generate an effect across a spectrum of challenges in a way that uh, I would say we have some of the best soldiers and best officers um, out there. And uh, I am proud to be part of that. I love it. I love it. And that leads me to ask you, is there any specific area of expertise uh, where the Canadian Army specifically excels at? A couple of days or weeks ago, I was, I was telling a story about my time with the U.S. Army. I served uh, as the Deputy Commanding General for Operations of a U.S. Corps. Right. So for your listeners, a Corps, an Army Corps. So bear with me. You join a section, 10, 12 people who are part of a platoon, who are 34 people, who are part of a company of 110 people, who are part of a battalion or a regiment who is 600 people who are part of a brigade that might be four to 5,000 people, who are part of a division who might be 10 to 15,000 people, who are part of a corps that is 40,000 people. Wow. So I served as a deputy for operations in one of those corps. The U.S. Army has three corps, 18 Airborne Corps, 3rd Armored Corps, and 1st Corps. Right. And they put together an exercise to check their readiness. Okay. And... Checking the readiness is a serious thing. The U.S. Army has a motto of be ready to fight tonight, and they mean it. Like, right. The fight could be coming tonight right. to the U.S. or right. for the U.S. Army, and they mm -hmm. need to be ready. So they check their readiness. And in this exercise, they were checking their readiness by putting on alert a company, a unit in Joint Base Lewis-McChord, which is on the West Coast of Washington state, uh, west coast of the US, putting them on alert. And if you were the company commander of that company, you would get orders, Jody, to say, um, enemy at this grid, you need to prepare your soldiers and you need to go get ready to do something to that enemy. Well, the enemy, the grid that you're given is in Alaska. <laughs> right. So the orders include, you have a day to get ready on day two, you embark on a C-17, which is a cargo plane. On day two, you're then flying with your company, 110 soldiers, to Alaska, to a staging base, where you would get possession of your equipment, your ammunition, your rations, and you are going to be given precise orders to go attack the objective that I just described to you. You get a day to rehearse and give orders and prepare because you're actually going to be inserted on... Uh, a flight of five Chinook helicopters to be carried further downrange in Alaska. Remember, you left Washington State three days ago. 
Right. Now right. you're in Alaska flying in helicopters. You are disembarking the landing zone and then you make your way to the objective a couple of kilometers later to engage that enemy. Then you have to expel, get back, and eventually you come home. It's a five-day test of your readiness. Okay. And as the ops general, I said, I'm in charge of certifying that readiness. So I'm going to go to Alaska and I'm going to follow them. I'm going to go see this awesomeness because it sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, and it does. I joined them in Alaska. I joined them in the Chinook helicopter insertion. We follow the patrol. We get to the objectives. And on the individual basis, on the soldier skill basis, I spent that 24 hours thinking of Canadian soldiers and Canadian sergeants and Canadian lieutenants and Canadian company commanders. And during that whole 24 hours, I'll tell you, Jody, you ask me what you think I'm good, we're good at. Mm-hmm. We are good at generating tactical leaders, competent um, combat proven leaders. At the time, I, I could remember my, my, my deployment to Panjway and the lieutenants and captains that we had in Panjway during my tour and what they were doing. I could remember my time in five brigade as a brigade commander when we met in Portugal. And I would put any Canadian sergeant, any Canadian lieutenant in that context and say that we would have compared very favorably to what I was seeing from the American uh, subunit that I was following to a point that uh, I finished that exercise being extremely proud of the leaders and proficiency we can generate in an army that might not be able to wake you up and say, you're going to Alaska in two days and send you there and then fly you with a bunch of Chinooks and then get you to the objectives. We might be able today because now we have five C-17s and we have 15 Chinooks. But at the time, the scope and scale of the U.S. Army's ability uh, is exponentially larger than what the Canadian Army has. But to answer your question, we do generate some amazing non-commissioned officers some proficient tactical leaders who I would follow anywhere. It's very reassuring to hear that, General. Uh, And I love that you could put it in the context of what you saw with the U.S., because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was that experience of being an an exchange officer with the U.S. Army. Um, I remember you and I having a conversation about readiness when you were in that position, and I found that fascinating. in terms of what the readiness expectations were at the first corps versus what some of your experiences were uh, in Canada with the Canadian Army? The contrast is one of resources. The contrast is one of scale. The contrast is one of um, the seriousness of how you take these responsibilities and this absolute focus in the U.S. Army when I served with them about being ready. I served with them between 2017 and 2019. And our Corps was assigned to the Pacific area of operation. And if you remember 2017 to 2019 is the time where KJ Yoon and the president of the US at the time were telling each other insults on social media and challenging each other on social media. And there were missile tests and missile uh, events over Japan or in the Sea of Japan. Mm And we thought uh, war was going to break out. Someone was going to miscalculate. A mistake was going to be done. And we would be um, marching ourselves into war in Korea or in the peninsula again. And we took that, the, the core headquarters, the units under the core, took that very seriously. And I'll tell you, I, I was a different officer when I came out of those two years because I left with this absolute obsession with we are in a profession that needs to be ready and when the alarm bell sounds is not the time to go say well i go need to get my new fire truck right the fire truck needs to be ready yeah when the alarm sounds is not the time to go unpack your new fire retardant uh, jacket the jacket needs to be hanging and ready when the alarm sounds is not the time to say, well, I have to go practice my drill of going up and down the ladder because I didn't finish my course. Mm -hmm. No. When the alarm sounds, you have to be ready. 
um, I took that away from my time with the U.S. military. Interesting. And so that leads me to ask about training, because I find training, everything boils down to training. So I would like to ask, how have you seen training evolve in the Canadian Army from perhaps a time that you joined uh, to where it is today? And what do you see is the future of training, modern military, and in this case, uh, land force training? There's lots. Uh, there's lots that I can can point out. I joined. I joined the military um, with, with with not even enough ammunition to simulate uh, training. Mm. Like we had to simulate with our voices that we were shooting blanks because we didn't even have money for blanks. Oh wow! Um, I joined a military that was not enabled by simulation and um, weapons effect systems like we have in Wainwright. Um, I joined a military that seldom would work with the Air Force um, to do close air support or aviation support. Um, so that has evolved drastically. But if I can maybe mention one thing that I think is significant, it's, it, it is for in our, our approach and our culture of how we deliver training and where there's still a lot of room to do even better. And I joined a, an infantry school as a captain where when I was giving infantry courses to uh, sergeants or officer cadets or second lieutenants, I took it upon myself to be the guardian of awesomeness. Like I decided if Jody was good enough to be passed. And I actually took it as a point of pride if I unmasked the student's weaknesses and made him not succeed. And because I had done my job as the guardian of the standards of the awesomeness of being in the infantry and a point of pride would be how many people didn't pass in my course. Mm, interesting. I look back and that is awful. <laughs> that is an absolute awful approach to take yeah, yeah. and an approach that we cannot uh, sustain. It should never uh, go back to, and mm. we are changing that approach to an approach of if I'm your instructor today and you're coming how do I leverage your strengths? How do I um, make the most of who you are, give you the tools to either compensate for some of your weakness or teach you what you need to know to get better in the areas that you might not be as strong and leverage you as a member of the team going forward where my obsession is not that I was able to ensure that you didn't succeed if you weren't good enough. My obsession is to give you all the training all the instruction that you need to succeed. And if you need more of this and less of that, it is delivered in a way to assure your training and not your selection. So I think that is one of the biggest shifts across the army as we deliver training. I'm happy to hear that. I think, I think that's got to be the right way um, because you want to build people up. And you want them, you want to enable them to be uh, good soldiers, good leaders. Um, yeah, uh, I think, uh, and if you can give them the tools and perhaps, you know, uh, have that flexibility, everybody learns differently. And so, uh, yeah, I, I'm very, I'm, I'm reassured to hear that that's, that's the approach going forward. Hey, everybody. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions, for their support of this podcast. Part of what we do at Go Bold is engage with senior leaders and try to have conversations that address topics like leadership, emerging technologies, and new capabilities. In this episode, you're hearing about the importance of training and communications, both of which are areas where Cubic is recognized as a global leader. I encourage you to learn more about them at cubic.com. I also want to thank Cubic for their support and for their faith in us to help preserve the voices of military leaders like our guests today. And now, let's get back to our chat. Um, so, we talked a little bit about um, some of the equipment that was bought for Afghanistan, and that has to be a very poignant time, I suspect, in your career, General, because Canadians were in combat in Afghanistan. 
in we lost lives in Afghanistan. So I would like to ask a little bit about your thoughts of that period in your career and um, maybe some of the more top level um, observances uh, of, of that time. So when I think back about that period, we, we started our uh, involvement or our mission in Afghanistan in 2002 after the, the attacks in New York and Washington, D.C., and we went into Kandahar with the coalition. Then that mission evolved into being with NATO in Kabul. And then from Kabul, we went back down to Kandahar in 2006 and then had 10 rotations of combat uh, in the province that culminated with my battle group being the last one and those combat missions. The mission continued for three years for training in op attention and, and all we all came home in 2014. Mm-hmm. I think one of the takeaways from that period is linking back to something I think I said earlier is the seriousness of what we were doing was uh, hoisted upon all of us in the service, but also in, in the senior leaders and in the, the government and politicians that send us to these missions. Soldiers don't decide to go on these missions. They are there to defend Canadian national interests, Canada's national interests, as uh, um, ordered by our government. So at that time, the needs of the mission were shared and understood. There was a willingness to give the tools to the soldiers that were needed to accomplish the mission because there was a seriousness to what we were doing. And I think that is the biggest takeaway, which I would say might not always have been my experience in my 35 years of service or 30 years of commission service, where we have ebbed and flowed in how serious we are in the equipment and tools and approach we have to do our job. And I think we're coming back to a period of seriousness now. If, I mean, everyone that's paying attention and even people that are not paying attention are seeing state-on-state warfare in Europe, are seeing um, a, a country being invaded by another country. Because what? Like not even clear if there's right. anything else other than a belligerent um, nation that has enough power that they've been thinking that they could and can get away with it and have for a hundred days. Mm-hmm. And this aggression by Russia has put back, I think, some of that seriousness in our discourse, in the way we talk about our national security and how we need to secure the continent, secure our country, secure um, our uh national interests, and also play a role in securing them abroad and playing a role within NATO and playing a role in the Pacific and in the Arctic and in other places in the globe. I think what is happening today is putting, again, that sharp contrast or giving you, giving all of us that element of this is serious and that you cannot improvise or ramp up at the last minute when the fire alarm comes. Right. And, you know, I was about to say, who would think that we would be talking about war in Europe in 2022? But I, you know, if I go back not too far in the past, unfortunately, obviously, there was the the conflict in the Balkans. Um, So it's not unheard of. But um, you're right, this is this is making everybody pay attention and I hope people do take it seriously and put more emphasis on the military being ready. Um, Kind of like that U S slogan ready to fight tonight. Um, You know, we have to be ready. So it leads me to ask you about your, your observations of what is happening in Europe right now. Um, Because there are peer threats or near peer threats, um, People talk about Russia, obviously, uh, China, and you just mentioned it, uh, that Canada has interests in Europe, uh, in the Asia Pacific, in the Arctic. So from what we are seeing today, how does that mold your observations of what the Canadian Army needs, how, how the Canadian Army needs to evolve or needs to orient itself? Because well, it confirms... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, please, please. You can finish your question. 
I was just going to say that, you know, those are all different challenges. You, yep. you, you di distinctly remember from your time at First Corps that the Asia Pacific region has its very, very real challenges with time and distance. Um, Europe has its own unique challenges. The Arctic has its own unique challenges. So how does a Canadian army uh, orient itself to the potential of any one of those? So first we have to accept that we can't do everything. We have to accept that there's 42,000 or 40,000 of us, half regular force, half part-time force, and there's not enough of us to be everywhere all the time. There needs to be priorities, but there needs to be, an, again, an obsession almost with being ready and being ready within means, being ready within our reality and our levels of manning and serviceability. But within that, do as much as you can to be ready at every level below the army headquarters. It starts by that. It, it is then followed up with a realization that we can be asked to do anything anywhere. If you had predicted to anyone three years ago that Canadian forces, soldiers, and medics would take over old senior homes in Ontario and Quebec and secure them to provide necessary aid, I would have said, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. If you would have predicted some of the missions that uh, have been asked of our rangers in remote communities to deliver and support vaccinations in Canada, I would have said, what are you talking about? Right. Um, we knew that we were training Ukrainians, but did we know that op reassurance in Latvia was going to take the seriousness that it has today, where actually being able to counter a Russian attack is not just words. Russia has attacked Georgia, Ukraine, and Ukraine again in the last 10 years. Right. Like this is not theoretical. If you are Latvia or Estonia or Lithuania. So there is a seriousness to our footprint. There's a realization that we need to be ready. There's a choice that needs to be made where maybe the Pacific is not the theater where you need army capabilities, but maybe other joint capabilities from the CAF are the ones that are available. But certainly if something happens in the Arctic and you need to send soldiers out there, who are you going to send? You're going to send ships companies in the Arctic operations patrol ship, maybe, but you need to send soldiers. And you certainly need them to send them anywhere else domestically and expeditionarily like we are seeing today. But what it is also making me realize is um, that there's some capabilities that we might have decided in the past that we're not as critical. And in the past, we got away from the air defense business because it was expensive. And we felt that we would always work alongside nations that would have air defense capabilities. So we don't have it. We're realizing that we would need it today. Mm -hmm. We decided that uh, we would not fight main battle tanks in Iraq or in Afghanistan or in the Middle East because we were fighting Daesh or the Taliban. And we're realizing that if we're serious in op reassurance to stop the Russians from invading, we need to be able to kill tanks and kill armor. Right. And now we're playing catch up. <clears throat> Five years ago, you could not have envisioned micro UASs and UAVs flying over your position and calling fires or dropping grenades. Mm -hmm. So you need the means to counter unmanned aerial systems. That was not a requirement a couple of years ago. We have great artillery pieces, but we don't have enough of them or with enough range for what we are seeing is playing out in Ukraine. And I'd much rather prefer to be able to see an enemy through an aerial platform and engage him at 100, 200, God forbid, 300 kilometers with HIMARS and ATACMs and a bunch of acronyms that just mean rockets that go really, really far. Right. But I would prefer to do that than having to go up close and punch him in the face. Right. I right. would prefer to see him and strike him at distance. So right. long range precision fires is lacking in the army's arsenal right now. Mm -hmm. So there's a number of these capabilities that have been highlighted by the current conflict and all of that, in addition to a need to modernize our command and control that is resilient to 
cyber attack and EW attack and being found by an enemy. There's a bunch of lessons that are being relearned and how we need to come together and fight. There's a realization that we need to pay close attention to how warfare is changing in the ways that I've just described, but also how warfare is not changing. Mm. And if you remember the first couple of weeks of the conflict in Ukraine, who was the king of the battle? It was the independent tank hunting team, a group of four people, four soldiers on the ground, moving about at the speed of feet through the woods with an anti-tank weapon. And they took out dozens, if not hundreds, of Russian armor. Right. The right. independent tank hunting team goes back to the bazooka in the Second World War. Right. Yes. And is still relevant today. But for it to be relevant, you need that missile or that anti-armor system to stop the enemy right. dead in its tracks. So long story short, you asked me about theaters, you asked me about lessons, you asked me about what's changing. I tried to weave as much as I could in that answer. Uh, I love it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we're talking about immediate realizations of capabilities that the Canadian Army is currently lacking and that you foresee needing for the future. But if you look further, how do you see land warfare evolving? Um, because we look at what's happening in Europe, and I think people are kind of shocked at how Russia is executing their plan. Um, but that's just one potential adversary or adversary. There's, there's others that we have to look at. But, uh, you know, it, technology evolves. So how do you see land warfare evolving in the future? Because we haven't talked about things like hypersonic weapons and how that changes the whole construct. Yep. Can yep. you even defend against them? So I'll just come back to something you said in your question. Sure. Like some of the capability gaps that I've explained, um, there were actually plans to deliver capabilities, right? Uh, Ground-based air defense is in the books and is going to deliver. It's mm -hmm. just going to deliver in 2027 or something. And Ukraine war has demonstrated that we need it now. There right. was a plan for an anti-tank or... Uh, anti-armor system, and it's going to deliver. It is continuing. But there was a realization that we need some things now. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not as much as we're completely caught off guard with our pants down. It's mm -hmm. that we had plans, just we thought we had more time to deliver on these capabilities. Right. But what is changing now, I think, is this realization that you no longer need to maneuver or outmaneuver the enemy. In the future, it would be more about finding the enemy and engaging him at distance. Land warfare will resemble more the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh than it will resemble the first Gulf War. It will be about sending cheap sensors, overwhelming swarms of micro UASs that will find you when you maneuver or you're in aggregated groups and will engage you from a distance in a way that you can't do anything back to me if you don't have the same weapons. You might be more um, better equipped in infantry and armor, but if I have a couple of cheap UAGSs and I can shoot at 150 kilometers, I will hurt you before you even get close to your six kilometer or four kilometer range of your tank. I think the maneuver, serve acquisition, and strike dynamic is going to change in a future conflict. I think we will have to learn to be much more dispersed, much better camouflage. I think we will have to learn how to command and control without emitting. Right. If you emit today, you are found. And if you are found, you potentially die. I think the future will have to find a way to continue to exert your command and control without your emission being your death sentence. And I think we will have to embrace uh, robotics and enable robotic equipment through artificial intelligence to give you greater effect on the battle space and on the ground than you can with human life. The value of human life will continue to increase and the sacrifice of a soldier will be less and less acceptable where things can be done by unmanned platforms. And 
unmanned ground platforms supported by uh, an intelligent, uh, artificial intelligence that can make decisions or quicker decisions, help the humans in the chain come faster and OODA loop the enemy, I think are some of the things that we'll see in the future. Very, very interesting. Um, General, I know our time is getting short. I have two last questions for you. Um, I mentioned earlier that I would ask you about your leadership style and how leadership, how your leadership has evolved, um, your leadership approach, sorry, has evolved um, over your career. How would you answer that question? I, I don't know. And, and I do remember you mentioning it at the start. And while I've been trying to think about it as I'm giving you other answers, I fear that I have not come up with an appropriate answer. I don't know how my leadership style has changed. There's days that I think of myself as the same lieutenant uh, that joined uh, the Citadel and the 2nd Battalion deployed to Srebrenica. There's other days that I will certainly acknowledge that I am different. Um, I think that um, I have shed that sense that it is on my shoulders to be the custodian of some of these traditions or my, my self-anointed responsibility to weed out uh, folks uh, has, has certainly gone away. Um, I've learned that um, not everything requires an immediate decision. Mm. Interesting. Sometimes not deciding is a decision in itself. And uh, I have a bias for action. I've always have. Mm -hmm. Most often it has served me well, but not always. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe at this level, that bias for action needs to be tempered with uh, more patience and consultation and uh, discussion then maybe as a lieutenant and captain and even major and battalion commander, I wasn't willing to take the time. Um, I'll admit to you that there's often been a time maybe in my younger career where I thought I was the smartest man in the room. And I've come to realize that I probably was mistaken most of the time and uh, that I'm not. That uh, a lot of people, everyone, um, most folks, that come together in, in these endeavors have a voice and something to contribute if you're willing to listen. And I might not have always been um, willing or open or patient enough uh, to listen. Um, maybe two more thoughts. Um, the second to laugh last is a, I've, I've come to believe and embrace the idea that leaders are there to keep their team safe. And if you cannot keep your team safe, how are you able to come together to do harm to the enemy? It is all about what you do to the enemy in the defense of your national interests. And it, it should never be about what you do to each other. But the last thought is that I also acknowledge that I know nothing. And uh, I, I, I can do better. I should uh, uh, do better. Uh, I learn. I'm amazed by examples around me, by stuff that I read. Um, people that I see in action. And uh, I, I, I like being amazed by how other people go about their business of being leaders because there are certainly hundreds of ways to be an effective leader. I've applied my way, but by no, I have no illusion that this is the way. And everyone comes with their own um, way of influencing others to achieve their task. But I do take solace in thinking that there are folks that have said to me that they would follow me. So that is the greatest compliment that as a leader I've ever had is when you're the people that are under your charge say that they're willing to follow uh, what you're laying out in front of us. Um, and I take uh, great comfort in knowing that. Uh, I do too, General. Um, I'm not in the Army, but I'd follow you. <laughs> so, um, my final question to you is um, how do you reflect on your time as commander of the Canadian army because you're in the seat you're leading it yeah. I'm, I'm thankful I'm happy you're there 
And uh, thanks for saying that, Jody. But I, I haven't allowed myself to 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 think about that. Um, it's been a, an incredibly busy year. Um, it's been a year of uncertainty, from the, the first phone call of being asked to be the acting army commander to not knowing when it's going to end to being told that it's going to end with the arrival of a new commander and then that new commander not coming and then continuing as acting. It has been a year of uh, a reckoning with our past behaviors and the way we treat each other, uh, tackling our conduct and culture. It has been a year where we have seen Afghanistan revert back to the Taliban rule. It's a year of still tackling COVID, a year of going through an election in Canada, and then vaccination mandates and protests in our streets in a way that I've never seen in our my time. Um, demonstrations in Ottawa and at the border with the US, um, possibility of using or not using the military. It is a time of war in Europe that we have spent some time talking about today. And um, a time of hollowness in the army and uh, lack of people and lack of resources and a seriousness to what we need to be doing that hits itself on this hollowness that we are facing. So Jody, I have not had time to think about my time in this chair while I've just tried to maintain uh, the focus and direction, um, try to give uh, some guidance for us to set priorities and continue to do what we have to do to be ready to answer these calls. And the calls have come. They come through domestic um, operations. They've come through helping in the situation in Ukraine and going to Poland and donating equipment and training Ukrainians on our howitzers that we gave them and getting ammunition and getting it ready. So maybe we'll need to chat again and we can focus on that. I would absolutely love to chat again anytime, uh, General. Um, uh, I think maybe you have given it a little bit of thought, <laughs> but yes, I, I totally take your point that uh, you've been very, very busy uh, as uh, commander of the Canadian army and um and I'm glad, like I said, that you're in the seat. I, 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 I think the army is lucky that that you were there. Um, now, just before I uh, sign off with you here, um, for the mathematician in you, how many people in a company? <laughs> 110. There you go. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Major General Saint Louis, Commander of the Canadian Army. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, sir. It has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I always love talking to you. Um, I really thank you for your time. The pleasure is all mine, Jody. Merci beaucoup. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, that, my friends, is Major General Michael St. Louis, Commander of the Canadian Army. If you have any questions for us at Go Bold, please write to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com, and we'll do our best to answer your questions. Thanks, everybody. Hope you have a wonderful day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>